Kings chapter 21 as we continue a series on the life of Elijah. Though Elijah is uh, only a small part of this chapter, it focuses on a man we've not met before named Naboth. 1 Kings chapter 21. Now Naboth the Jezreelite had a vineyard in Jezreel beside the palace of Ahab king of Samaria. And after this Ahab said to Naboth, Give me your vineyard, that I may have it for a vegetable garden, because it is near my house, and I will give you a better vineyard for it. Or, if it seems good to you, I will give you its value in money. But Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. And Ahab went into his house vexed and sullen because of what Naboth the Jezreelite had said to him, for he had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he lay down on his bed and turned away his face and would not eat, would eat no food. But Jezebel, his wife, came to him and said to him, Why is your spirit so vexed that you eat no food? And he said to her, Because I spoke to Naboth, the Jezreelite, and said to him, Give me your vineyard for money, or else, if it please you, I will give you another vineyard for it. And he answered, I will not give you my vineyard. And Jezebel, his wife, said to him, Do you now govern Israel? Arise and eat bread, and let your heart be cheerful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with his seal, and she sent the letters to the elders and the leaders who lived with Naboth in his city. And she wrote in the letters, Proclaim a fast, and set Naboth at the head of the people, and set two worthless men opposite him. And let them bring a charge against him, saying, You have cursed God and the king. Then take him out and stone him to death. And the men of his city, the elders and the leaders who lived in his city, did as Jezebel had sent word to them. As it was written in the letters that she had sent to them, they proclaimed a fast and set Naboth at the head of the people. And the two worthless men came in and sat opposite him. And the worthless men brought a charge against Naboth in the presence of the people, saying, Naboth cursed God and the king. So they took him outside the city and stoned him to death with stones. Then they sent to Jezebel, saying, Naboth has been stoned, he is dead. As soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you for money. For Naboth is not alive, but dead. And as soon as Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, Ahab arose to go down to the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite to take possession of it. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Arise, go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who is in Samaria. Behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth, for he has gone to take possession. And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, Have you killed and also taken possession? And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, In the place where dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, shall dogs lick up your own blood. Ahab said to Elijah, Have you found me, O my enemy? He answered, I have found you, because you have sold yourself to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. Behold, I will bring disaster upon you. I will utterly burn you up and will cut off from Ahab every male, bond or free, in Israel. And I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Basha, the son of Ahijah. 
For the anger to which you have provoked me, and because you have made Israel to sin, and of Jezebel the Lord also said, The dog shall eat Jezebel within the walls of Jezreel. Anyone belonging to Ahab who dies in the city, the dog shall eat, and anyone of his who dies in the open country, the birds of the heavens shall eat. There was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord like Ahab, whom Jezebel, his wife, incited. He acted very abominably in going after idols, as the Amorites had done, whom the Lord cast out before the people of Israel. When Ahab heard these words, he tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his flesh and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went about dejectedly. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the disaster in his days, but in his son's days I will bring the disaster upon his house. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. I try and stay informed on the worldwide movement of the gospel, especially as missions go forth to reach the unreached, to go to a number of websites and use some apps and things like that and try and read just to keep up with that. And even though all of us probably have been preoccupied with the elections in America the past week, there were some noticeable things that caught my attention. Uh, one was uh, on a tweet from Amy Orr Ewing. Amy is the wife of an Anglican pastor in England, and she is one of the foremost apologists for the Christian faith uh, alive today. Uh, I love to hear her speak, and she has a passion for evangelism. She has witnessed and uh, evangelized the Taliban. And she, on her tweet, just had a picture of this uh, woman from Africa, a very attractive woman who looked in her maybe mid or latter 20s, and all that said, that Amy said was, please pray for this sister in Christ. She has been taken by Boko Haram. Pray for her to be protected and released. And then you probably saw where it was almost about a week ago that a church building in France, in a church building in France, early in the morning, an Islamic terrorist murdered three people. Two died in the church building. A 60-year-old woman whom the news said, quote, was virtually beheaded, and a 55-year-old man whose throat was cut. The man was a husband and a father, and then another woman, age 44, was stabbed multiple times. She fled to a nearby cafe and then later died. We read these things, and many, many more, almost weekly, and we have to ask, is there justice for God's people? And if there is, where is it? In Luke 18, Jesus said, And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones? Those who cry out to him day and night, will he keep putting it off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. We hear the term, or have heard it for a few months, thrown around by everyone about justice to such an extent that they wonder if, if we're hearing and saying the same things by definition. Let me give you the definition, the formal definition of the justice of God. It is. God's justice is that he has instituted righteous laws and he has established rewards for those who obey and punishment for those who disobey. And he does this without favoritism. 
Let me read you that formal definition again. God's justice is that he has instituted righteous laws and he has established rewards for those who obey and punishment for those who disobey, and he does this without favoritism. But why does this seem to happen so rarely? That the innocent suffer and perpetrators seem to go without any consequences. Even though this chapter focuses on the story of what happens to Naboth, the chapter really is a chapter about the, the justice of God. What is God's justice and how is it administered? Well, we see here in this story several things. One, God's people do suffer injustice in this world and in this life. Ahab, as the king, has a second residence in this place called Jezreel. And next door to his, his residence is a vineyard owned by Naboth. And he says that he wants the vineyard in order to be able to plant vegetables in the adjacent property right next to his house. And so he makes Naboth an offer. Either he'll pay him what the land is worth or he'll swap him some other land, a better vineyard. But Naboth refuses. And the wording of his refusal is very important. He says, the Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. He doesn't say uh, there are no better vineyards. He doesn't say you can't pay my price. No, it's, an, it's a theological issue for him. The Lord, may Yahweh, Yahweh forbid that I should give you the land that I've inherited from my fathers. It was a principle that he held to. It wasn't an economic one. Naboth treasured the land because it had been passed down to him. And the fact that he uses God's name like that indicates that he was a godly man. This infuriates Ahab. He goes home, he pouts. Jezebel makes her entrance. Why are you upset? You're not even eating. And Ahab tells her why, that Naboth has refused the vineyard. It sounds so childish. He's pouting, he refuses to eat because he hasn't got what he wanted. And then she essentially says to him, some king you are. I mean, this is the daughter of the king of the Phoenicians. She had learned kingly behavior from him. And in their understanding, the king did not administer the law. The king was the law. She says, you want the piece of property? I'll get it for you. We'll take care of this. So she comes up with this scheme. She sends a letter on royal letterhead. She forges a letter basically under Ahab's name, sends it to the elders, the leaders in Jezreel, tells them to call a feast. You heard the story. Put these two witnesses there. Put Naboth in front of everyone and then falsely accuse him and then stone him. All of it plays out exactly the way she tells him for it to play out. We come to the end of that in verse 16, and everything looks to have been resolved. Naboth is dead. He's disposed of. In fact, we read later in 1 Kings that it wasn't only him that was put to death, but also his sons. And the, clean, uh, the king Ahab has claimed the vineyard. We can learn some things from this. One, we find here a true picture of the lot of God's people in this world. This story is about Naboth and Jezebel, but not only about them. We, we read in the New Testament in 1 Peter, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal which comes upon you to prove you as though something strange was happening to you. 
In Mark 13, Jesus said, you must be on your guard. You will be handed over to local courts and councils and flogged in the synagogues. So the Bible's portrayal of believers in this life is that we will suffer and be oppressed. And it's so refreshing because it's realistic. It is realistic that we will suffer injustice. The second observation, such injustice will often be inflicted by the government and or its courts. I prepared this long ago. In this story, it comes from a passive king and an activist queen. In Daniel chapter 3, it comes from the king of Nebuchadnezzar. I mean, the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar. Or it will come from some Roman official in the New Testament enforcing emperor worship. And so throughout history, it is a cursory reading. Many, many, not all, governing authorities have often made themselves the adversaries and the oppressors of the people of God. The third observation from this story is the clear similarity between Naboth and Jesus. Listen to these words from, Mark, I mean, from Matthew 26 and how similar they, they sound to what happens in 1 Kings 21. Now the chief priest and the whole council sought false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. I mean, it's like it's lifted from 1 Kings 21. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At least two came forward then. Two false witnesses. And Jesus is accused of the same thing falsely that Naboth was. So you have to ask, I have to ask, what if this happens to you? If it hasn't happened to you, maybe it has in the past. But what if it happens in the future? What if you should suffer in this manner, falsely accused, and the decision's already made before you even have a chance to defend yourself. You know what it means? It means you're not alone. The Christ who has shared neighbor's sufferings will share in yours as well. That's why Colossians 1 says, For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. We also learn from this is that God's servants must be prepared to pay the price for standing for justice. Jezebel's scheme could have been stopped in numerous ways. Someone that had received this message probably had friends. Naboth had friends that were elders in the city in Jezreel. Someone could have said, hey, Naboth, there's going to be a meeting. Don't come. As your personal friend, you Take your family, leave, go somewhere else for the next month or two, or sell him the property. Do it, Naboth, you don't know what's involved here. But there's no indication there's any warning. In fact, from, from the story, it seems as though they all, 100%, go along with the plan. Why didn't they warn him? Well, we can sympathize with their dilemma. They knew that the king had power over life and death. They might have been saying, well, what will happen to my wife and my family if I disobey? It probably would mean death. We can understand that. We can sympathize with it. They were in a very, very difficult situation, but here's the truth. It wasn't right. It wasn't right. It was not justifiable, and they all went along with it, which leads to the observation that injustice flourishes not only by wickedness, but by weakness. 
when those around are weak and do not stand up. And the main issue then and now is always the fear of man or the fear of God. And Christ warned us against the fear of man over that supersedes the fear of God. He said, do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Who do you fear more? God or man? Will you stand for what is right, but maybe it's not popular. It's easy to stand for what's right when everybody agrees with you. You and I must settle this matter in advance. The time, young people, the time uh, now, young people, is to decide what's right, what's true. Now's the time to lay foundations. The time to make a decision to stand for what is right is not when you have to do it. You better be prepared long in advance so that when that happens, I will know what I will, I will do. So your prayer is that God would give you and me a fear of him that surpasses fear of others. We also see here that God does bring justice to his wrong people. At the end of verse 16, it looks like everything's all sewed up. As I, I mentioned before, it, it appears to be the perfect crime. Naboth is dead. Ahab has the vineyard. Everybody's gone home. Everything looks so clean and so covered over until verse 17 when it says the word of the Lord came to Elijah. Elijah apparently didn't know anything about this. News had not reached him. That is until God tells him. God saw it. God saw Naboth being framed. God saw Naboth being stoned to death. God saw Naboth's bloodstained body being trampled. He saw it all. But knowing that, does that help? Does 1 Kings 21 help? Can this story give comfort to anyone who is oppressed? <coughs> Why did God not protect Naboth? It's all right. Y'all got my back up. For those online, everyone's wearing masks except me. Why did God not protect Naboth or the people in the church building in France? A week ago, or Amy Orr Ewing's friend who was kidnapped. If God has such a passion for his justice, why does it not show up when it's needed? Well, this is the mystery of what we call God's restraint. And it pervades the Bible. We see, miraculously, God sparing the life of Moses. When Pharaoh had said that every Hebrew boy of a certain age would die, Moses is spared, but the others were not. Jesus is spared. When his parents, Joseph and Mary, are told, flee to Egypt because Herod is issuing a command that all the boys in that region, two years old and younger, will die. He is spared, but the others are not. We call that God's restraint amidst God's justice. Peter was delivered from prison by the angel. But Herod executes James with a sword. So why does God often hold his justice back? That's what the psalmist says in verse 11 of Psalm 74. Why do you hold back your hand, your right hand? Take it from the folds of your garment and destroy them. So 1 Kings 21 shows us a guarantee of God's justice, but it also shows us that God's timetable rarely matches our timetable. 
Justice is coming, but it's not when we would have chosen. So 1 Kings 21 is a preview of 2 Thessalonians 6, of 2 Thessalonians 1, 6. God is just, it says. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled, to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. So God will bring about justice for his wronged people. And that should make him attractive to us. Now, if I got your attention with that last statement, I hope so. That should make God attractive to us. <clears throat> if you've not paid a lot of attention the past few minutes, I really want you to pay attention for the next couple of minutes. This, in my study this week, was the main thing that stood out to me. <clears throat> Dr. Ralph Davis, in his commentary on, on 1 Kings tells about Chris Wright, who went to speak years ago at a conference in India. Chris Wright was speaking from the Old Testament, and he told how a young man came up to him at the conference and said how thrilled he was to hear that Chris Wright would be speaking from the Old Testament. And he began to tell him this. This young man said that he had grown up in the caste system in a lower caste in India, and because of that, he the family he was a part of, and all of his community suffered oppression. Oppression was just a normal way of life. Oppression, demeaning, injustice, and even violence, strictly because of the caste he was born into. And so like anyone, he was greatly affected by that. He was greatly angered by that. And so he determined that he would study, and he would go to college, and he would learn enough to where he could come back gain some kind of power and influence, and then turn the tables to go after his oppressors. He goes to college committed to study revolutionary government and Marxism. He didn't respect the few Christians he knew. He got to college, and some Christians became acquainted with him. And though he, he did not know them or really respect them at that time, someone gave him a Bible. And so one night, he said, just out of a casual interest, he began reading the Bible. He'd never read any. Guess what was the very first thing he read from the Bible? 1 Kings chapter 21. This story of Naboth and Ahab and Jezebel. And to use his words, he was astonished to find that it was all about greed for land, abuse of power, corruption of the courts, and violence against the powerless things that he himself was all too familiar with from his own experience. But even more amazing, he said, was the fact that God took Naboth's side and not only accused Ahab and Jezebel, but he also took vengeance upon them. And he said, here is a God of real justice, a God who identified the real villains and who took real action against them. And he said, quote, I never knew such a God existed. <clears throat> and he went on to read the rest of the Old Testament. He found that his first impression was correct, that this God constantly took the side of the oppressed. And he took direct action against their enemies. Here was a God he could respect, even though he didn't yet know him. But he said that I could respect him because he was a God who could understand my problem. And I was struck by that statement. I never knew such a God existed. And it all came about from this initial reaction to the story of Naboth. 
He was not yet a Christian, and yet the Holy Spirit was beginning to draw him toward God, and later he would come to faith in Christ. Perhaps, here's my point, perhaps in our day, especially in America, in the church, in a desire to make God acceptable to people, we've stressed his love and mercy almost at the exclusion of anything else, and in desiring to make him acceptable, he's not respected. I don't need a God like that. It's what maybe people think. Lastly, we see God delights to show mercy. I'm out of time, so just a couple of, uh, of words. We see that when the word comes, the word of God comes to Elijah and he goes to Ahab, Ahab is terrified. I think he's seen enough of Elijah and what happened to Mount Carmel to know whatever Elijah's saying is true. And he's speaking on God's behalf that judgment is coming. So Ahab does all these things that are associated with repentance, sackcloth, ashes, basically crying out for mercy. And we look at that and think, Lord, you don't think that's real, do you? Ahab, crocodile tears, foxhole religion, whatever you want to call it, there's no indication of a real change, and yet what does God do? He tells Elijah, I'm going to postpone judgment. Rather than bring it in his lifetime or right now, it's going to come later. It's going to not come at this very moment. It's going to come later. So we don't have the, can we don't have the cancellation of God's justice. We have the postponement of it, of which we ought to be thankful. Who do we relate to in this story? I'll tell you who I relate to, Ahab. But God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so the justice of God is aimed at all of us, for all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And yet what does God do? Even there that requires justice, he shows mercy. And he says, not now. With us, he says, I'm going to carry out justice. I'm not going to change my nature but it's going to follow my son on the Lord Jesus. And so we thank God. We thank God today for his justice and for his mercy. And we remember, but God demonstrates his own love for us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Let's pray together. Father, you are so much bigger than we understand. And even with the scripture that describes your nature, we, we only know parts of it. And we thank you that in somehow it, you are just and merciful and full of grace and at the same time anger and will carry out vengeance. And so we, we pray that, that we would be recipients of your mercy through your son, the Lord Jesus, the perfect redeemer. And we thank you for the comfort it gives that one day there will be justice. There will be justice for the oppressed, for those who've been murdered and mistreated and, and children abused and others, and that this is not going unnoticed, although it may appear uh, that it is. And we, we pray that we would trust you and seek to make the good news known as best as possible. And we pray, pray for this African woman, friends of Amy or, or Ewing, that she would be released from these captors. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.